Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today we speak with Delciana Winders. She is a professor and the director of the Animal Law and Policy Institute at Vermont Law. Oh my God, what a delight to have a conversation with someone who even by her own words has evolved in the animal law section since graduating from law school. She has worked in various areas with respect to animals who are uh, mistreated, people who are using them in a way that is not necessarily inherently correct for the animals. Uh, She also now at Vermont Law is working with the restorative justice group that is working hand in hand uh, with the animal law to build a different way of having a conversation, which all of you know is right up my alley. So I had so much fun having this conversation, educational conversation, just really appreciative conversation of where we are Animals to Delcy are seeant beings. They feel joy and sadness. They feel all sorts of outside stimuli in a way that we need to be respectful of. So without further ado, I invite you to listen to my conversation on Why Do Pets Matter with Delciana Winders. Hi, Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law Mediation, of course, this wonderful Why Do Pets Matter podcast. I am so grateful that Delciana Winders is here. She is a professor and the director of Animal Law and Policy Institute at Vermont Law School. She's also a colleague of mine on the ABA Animal Law Committee and just has done so much in the animal law world that I'm so grateful she's here today chatting with us about Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad. So, Delcy, all the time we start with one question, which is, why do pets matter to you? And then we go from there. So, Delcy, why do pets matter to you? So, pets matter to me for the same reason that all animals matter, which is that they're sentient and they matter in their own right. They have their own complex lives. And we often think about pets in terms of the benefits that they provide to us, which are amazing. We are so lucky we get to share our lives with animals. And I am so grateful for my dogs who have helped me through so much. But first and foremost, they matter because they're sentient. They matter for their own reasons. And I think it's important not to lose sight of that. And not to forget that a lot of other animals who we don't see as often also matter for these same reasons. 
So do me a favor, just for the people who are listening to this who may not know what sentient means. I mean, I know what sentient means, and probably most of them do, but I always like to say, hmm, give me your definition of what that means to you. Yeah, I mean, to me, sentient is sensitive, sensate, capable of feeling pain and feeling pleasure, capable of flourishing and living a good life and experiencing a good life. And so for me, animals, because they they can hurt, they can feel pain and they can feel pleasure and joy, they are entitled to our consideration because of that. Thanks. That is such an on-point description because it just brings to the fore the emotions that we value, that we have now found that animals also value, that are very important to them. And although they may not complain as much as we would complain if we were being mistreated, um, they really do have a life that is changed based on the care they receive. Absolutely. So I loved when you said they matter for their own. Tell me a little bit more about that because I absolutely agree. I mean, they matter on their own and every animal is different. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, mostly, I mean, they matter for their own reasons. They have their own agenda and some of them, you know, let's talk, say dogs who have evolved over many, many generations to live with us. Um, part of what they want may be to live with us and to live in our company. And we're lucky that we get to have those relationships, but other animals have different agendas. And I mean, particularly I've done a lot of work around captive wildlife and people think that if you breed an animal in captivity, it somehow becomes domesticated. And that is not the case. These animals are genetically identical to their wild counterparts and their needs are the same. And so to be able to thrive, they need to be able to engage in the behaviors that they're genetically driven to do and that they evolved over many years. And so those animals, uh, what matters to them is going to be very different than what matters to a dog or a cat. And so I think it is very important that we think about specifics. Who is the animal uh, in terms of their species being, but also their individual uh, needs as well and their individual context and history. That's so important because I think people do believe that once an animal is in captivity, somehow it's inherent um, life that has been going on for millennia shifts. Now, it probably does shift a little because they're not necessarily swimming in an ocean or they're not necessarily, you know, flying through the treetops. However, there has been a real push from the beginning of time um, to present to make a little better movement toward some natural habitat. And I know you've been involved in doing some of that or observing or working with people to create Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Let's let's talk about elephants, for example. Um, elephants, my favorite, <laughs> are not domesticated. No matter what some circus folks might try to claim, they are wild animals. Even if they have been bred for multiple generations in captivity, they're wild animals, and that means they need to move. Elephants in the wild can walk up to thirty miles a day. These animals need to have space to roam, to constantly forage. They're very social animals. They need to be able to interact with others of their their species. 
And when we take that away, it's a really fundamental deprivation. And that's why you'll see things like elephants swaying back and forth, um, bobbing their heads. And sometimes people will say, oh, they're dancing. But no, it's a sign of brain damage. It's a sign that they've been denied their most fundamental needs. And so now we are starting to pay more attention to that and to figure out what can we do to make their conditions as similar as possible to what they would have in the wild. And also to recognize that there may be some animals, particularly long ranging animals like elephants, like large carnivores, like orcas who cannot do well in captivity. Right. And, you know, some animals who are in captivity cannot be released into the wild. And so there are reputable sanctuaries where they can go to, but those sanctuaries will be the first to tell you, this isn't the perfect ideal for this animal. We're doing the best that we can for them because of the, the context that arose, but they would be much better if they were able to be in the wild in their natural conditions. Right. With all that, that entails and brings to fore, because then you have the apex predators, you have the animals that are all going to interact. I know I was um, on an expedition in Africa and the, mm -hmm. the amount of interaction between the animals is what keeps them alert, alive, aware, bonded in their families, no matter which animal it was, they were bonded in their families. I remember a, a female lion um, giving up her, uh, kill to a bunch of hyenas and they mm. are very incredible animals uh, and we learned later because we watched her that she had hidden her cubs nearby and giving up the kill was much easier than having her cubs be discovered by the hyenas so you're yeah. right these animals have a thought process they're they're right there they have a thought process and these are in the wild but those thought processes I'm trying to think of the correct word because it's, I think it's inherent or inherited. They are things that come from sort of like your reptilian brain, sort of when we have fight or flight, that comes from our reptilian brain. It doesn't come from things we visualize every day. So right. even though elephants or lions or tigers can be trained to do things in a circus or in a show, quite frankly, that reptilian brain might kick in and that's when issues arise. So I know you've um, done work with, I believe you've done work with things when things have gone right, things have gone wrong. You've, you've really, because you worked before this, I believe for Mercy for Animals. Um, I worked for, um, well, Mercy for Animals has been one of my clients in um, the farmed animal advocacy clinic that I had at Lewis and Clark Law School. Um, so I've worked with a lot of organizations, but I spent many years working for the PETA Foundation and heading up their captive animal law enforcement division, which does, you know, continues to do, um, even though I've been gone for a while, amazing work on behalf of captive wildlife. And so I, I got to be part of a team that helped rescue many dozens of captive wild animals from really substandard conditions and rehome them in reputable sanctuaries and see their lives completely turn around and see them start to thrive while also helping to put an end to the industries that were creating those conditions in the first place. Right. Because there, there is, you know, the desire for people to get these animals when they're very young and put them on display or not. And, and there aren't necessarily the best of screens to keep that from happening. And when that does occur, how do we then rehabilitate the animal who may have lived for three or four or 10 years in um, substandard conditions 
how do you, how have you um, in your present position as a, and also in past iterations of your assistance to animals, how is that matriculated? So you find the animal and you work with the people um, because we spoke before we came on the air about, you know, law enforcement and coming in and that's always a possibility. However, my biggest fear is always they'll just go out and get another one. So that's always my biggest fear. Uh, You know, they move a state, they do something, and then they go get another one. So how do we shift that paradigm and really educate them and educate people who are coming up behind them that this isn't really the right way? Yeah, it's a complicated question. And that's almost, so I'm teaching an animal law practicum right now. And that's, that's sort of what we talk about big picture is, what is the role of the law in changing the status and treatment of animals and education and raising awareness and how do all of these things interact? And so when I'm confronted with a situation that we wanna remove an animal from, of course, the first line is always to try to work with the person who's responsible and to do it behind the scenes, to not call them out, to say, you know, you probably weren't aware of the complexity of this animal's needs. I'm, I know you care about this animal in your own way, even if you're not able to provide for him or her. And we would be willing at no cost to you to, to get this animal to sanctuary, ideally with an agreement that you never again possess animals or at least captive wild animals or or whatever the situation may be. And sometimes that works. Um, Oftentimes it doesn't uh, because there's a lot of polarization, but sometimes it does. And when it doesn't, then you ramp things up and, you know, you let them know about potential civil litigation avenues you might pursue. And then maybe that will incentivize them to release the animal. Maybe a public awareness campaign will do it all the way through to, um, I'm a civil litigator, so I haven't done a lot of criminal law. um, And I I have my own hesitations about incarcerating folks. I have a brother who's in prison, thanks to a three strikes law. Um, But I've (laughs) used civil measures, uh, particularly the Endangered Species Act, citizen supervision to help animals get to better situations when that's necessary. That's not the ideal. It takes a lot of resources. It's, It's very combative. But if it has to come to that, it's great to have that tool available. And I love that you start to have a conversation. There's a group here called Guardians of Rescue who help people who have dogs in substandard conditions, help them get a house, help them get food and build a rapport so that maybe they can then have the person recognize this isn't really the best situation for the dog. They love the dog. And so if you love the dog, Mm -hmm. let us find a situation that is helpful. And it sounds to me that that's what you try to do initially with the other people. We recognize you love this animal. We recognize that this animal might be a source of income, let's say, because it's a roadside zoo or something. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we get it. And, but the animals that you love are not necessarily thriving, but it's hard to, and I hate saying that word because I always say, get my butt out of my head. Uh, (laughs) And we, we really want to respect that this is how they see things. And so I loved when you said, you know, we try to shift it in a way that they are making choices for the pet that's for the benefit of the pet. Yeah. Even though it's a wild animal, not necessarily a pet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so important to understand where the person is coming from and to understand that people generally don't end up in these situations because they're bad people. It's just because of life circumstances. And, and, you know, it's, it, when they're little cubs um, or little animals, 
they're so cute. And then they get to be 200 pounds or 500 pounds. And, you know, hopefully we would be able to work something out at an earlier stage. However, educating them. I know we had this conversation before we got on as well, because I always talk to my guests, as everyone knows, before I get on. So I have all this memory stuff that I'm pulling out. It would be so wonderful if when someone is approached peacefully and decides to maybe pass their pet on to a sanctuary, that then they go out and talk about why they did it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, you know, there, there are two pieces to the work that I try to do. It's really important to help those individual animals. And those animals are like the starfish in, in the, the story that's told about, you know, the man who's throwing starfish back into the sea. And someone says, what are you doing? There's so many starfish. You can never help them all, but it makes a difference for that one. And so that's key. And that is part of what keeps me going is remembering those animals whose lives we've changed. But I, it's also really important to change the circumstances that led to this, to make sure that this doesn't keep repeating itself over and over and over again with generations and generations of more animal suffering. And so that educational component is really critical. No, I love that. And the awareness part that you talked, I mean, there is a role of law. There is a, a role of law that would maybe start the conversation. And if we could, you know, sideline it a little bit when it first is used so that those, those heated tempers and positions and, you know, you're, you're stuck in your position, you know, don't take my animal away, or this is not an animal that needs to be here. You're stuck in your positions and, and being able to have an awareness discussion and an appreciative discussion, because as you said, I loved it. They probably didn't know what they were doing when they did it. Um, they had a whole different opinion or whatever. And now maybe they're stuck and can't get out, but don't want don't want to give up the animal they love because most of the time they do really love the animal in some way. Yes. Uh, yes. And so it's sort of like taking your dog away and it's like, hello. Uh, that's why I love the guardians of rescue because they do work with them uh, with the pet owner who's in a, you know, the pets in a difficult situation to have them recognize that the pet might be better off. And I think that's the hardest thing for people with animals, any animal to think that, and I know that you've probably come across people throughout your life that said, nobody's going to take care of this animal the way I do. Yeah. And, and I go, well, um, if something happened to you, the animal would learn really quickly how yeah. to adjust to yeah. some other way of, of being cared for. So we, we need to appreciate and acknowledge. So Delcy, tell me a little bit more about what you're working on now, because I know that Vermont Law School holds wonderful webinars and things that actually educate anyone. It's, you know, it's not just for lawyers anymore. Uh, anyone can sign up for these webinars and listen to them, maybe even decide to go to law school um, or to become more active in this situation. So tell us a little bit more about what's coming up, what you've done in the past, because you have been so prolific in educating people and having them become aware. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on. And I hope you'll come again, because I know we'll have much to say after this that we forgot. So yes. tell me a little bit more. <laughs> There's so much. Where to begin? Yeah, right. Um, so I'll start with uh, what's going on here at Vermont Law School in the Animal Law and Policy Institute, which um, I've just created and I'm directing. So Vermont Law School is a top-ranked environmental law school, and it's I before joining the faculty, I was teaching here for several years during the summers, and 
it's a really special place. I've taught at a number of law schools now, and Vermont Law School is different than all of them. It is very mission driven. So the faculty and the students are here because they have a mission to change the world, whether that's for animals, the environment, uh, and restorative justice space. Um, but everyone is here because they are committed to doing good work for the world. And that's amazing. And our programs are so collaborative. So a lot of times you'll hear about divides between animal law and environmental law, and it can be very siloed even at schools that do have animal law programs. Here, the Animal Law and Policy Institute is inside the Environmental Law Center. Uh, we are completely integrated into it, and animal law is being embraced as part of, of environmental law, while well, recognizing there will be debates and things we don't agree on with some of our other environmental law colleagues. And so that's just created amazing opportunities for collaboration, um, just to name a few few things that are coming up. We have a we have an event uh, webinar coming up uh, for prospective students who want to learn more about the program, and that will be recorded and posted online, and, and we'll have similar events in the future. We also have um, a summer program coming up, and so Vermont Law School has had an amazing summer session for a very long time, but this is the first year that we will have an animal law course during every single one of the summer terms, and there are four terms. Uh, so there's at least one animal law option during that. And Vermont is beautiful in the summer. Uh, just amazing. So there are intensive two-week courses. One of the courses, a new cover on a uh, course on undercover investigations is a weekend intensive. We're also doing, thanks to support from the ASPCA, summer media fellowships so that two reporters interested in animal law can come be here, inter interact with our community and audit one of our animal law classes. Uh, we have some collaborations coming up with our uh, US Asia partnerships for the environment. We will be hosting on March 26th, a virtual symposium, also in collaboration with a law school in China on, it's called Wildlife and Welfare, Animal Protection Law and Theory and Practice. And it's really just to facilitate discussion between animal law scholars and advocates in China and in the rest of the world. So I'm very excited about that and future collaborations that will build on that. Vermont Law School has a National Center on Restorative Justice, and this summer we're going to be doing a virtual symposium with them looking at animal law and restorative justice. Um, we're working with our Center for Agriculture and Food Systems on some projects, so there's a lot going on. Um, we are also launching a farmed animal advocacy clinic this coming fall so that students will be able to uh, get an experiential learning opportunity while doing hands-on work on behalf of farmed animals and their advocates. And in fall 2023, we're launching a master's in animal protection policy program. So those are some of the things. There is a lot going on, and I encourage folks to go to our website to find out more and stay on top of it. I think you're going to post it in the show notes. Uh, we also have, we do have a short form URL, shortish. Uh, vermontlaw.edu forward slash animal dash law. We'll get folks there uh, to learn more and, and stay I'll on top of it. And the Sean notes too. It's, I mean, I'm blown away because when I started my practice, the thought of having restorative justice and animal law in the same room uh, was 
not even um, considered. So I'm totally thrilled. And I know there are really only, and maybe I'm wrong, and please correct me if I am, three schools that are focusing on this. So you mentioned Lewis and Clark and that you had been there before. Mm -hmm. You're at Vermont now. And then our colleague, Chris Green, um, is at Harvard. So there are certain um, schools that really work on this uh, as, as a focus. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, Lewis and Clark was the first and they're yes. doing amazing work, but there's student interest everywhere. I cannot tell you how enthusiastic the students here are. My office is a revolving door of students. And so I'm hopeful that we'll see more and more of these elsewhere as well. You know, Delcy, it's so interesting to me because I graduated from law school in 1984. I think you might've graduated 10 years after me, um, maybe more. 20. Uh, <laughs> 20. God, you are very young. And I am very old, uh, <laughs> but there was not even a class in animal law, but then there wasn't a class in mediation either. So both of yeah. my passions weren't even part of the realm when I graduated from law school. And now we really have evolved as a practice to focus on things that really are of interest so that you can become more of an advocate and an advisor and an educator, I think, as a lawyer, instead of simply the adversarial. I don't know how you yes. feel about that. Yes, I think, I mean, you know, animal law is growing. It, there are more job opportunities than ever before. And I think that's completely right. You know, there are absolutely the litigation pathways, but there are also a lot of other ways of doing this work. And I think we're just starting to have discussions about the the role of restorative justice uh, with animal law. And I think the potential is huge. But we're only just now starting to have discussions, widespread discussions about the role of restorative justice in animal law. For a very long time, it's been focused on carceral approaches. And thanks to work by Justin Marceau at Denver Sturm, Uh, and others, we're starting to think more broadly about this. And I think there are going to be more and more opportunities. Already, a number of organizations, particularly a lot of local humane societies, are trying to look at how can we uh, help in people's lives and help them help animals rather than intervene in a punitive way. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I'm very excited to be facilitating those conversations at Vermont Law School because we have the National Center on Restorative Justice. We have masters in restorative justice students who are very interested in this intersection. And so I think they're going to be some of the leaders in this space. Wow, that is phenomenal for me as a practitioner, because this has been something that I've been speaking about for years. So it's just so wonderful to recognize it's coming to the fore. In fact, just yesterday, I think I posted, or maybe it was this morning, um, that the uh, PetSmart Charities has created a 60-day hold at various shelters that they're funding so that if someone has a crisis in their family, that the pet can be dropped off, held, and then recovered. Not that it would then be adopted out um, because it had to be signed over. And I think that's a piece that we don't really think of very much. We think of, um, you know, people who are abusing animals or people who uh, are not necessarily giving animals a great life, but then there are people who are giving animals a great life and their life, especially now post-COVID, has gone really awry. And you know, that, that whole conversation that I'm sure you saw about how all, all these people 
adopted all these animals. And when they go back to work, they're just going to drop them off at the shelter. And my mantra was, well, let's see what the shelter can do to help them either keep the animal yeah. um, by doing some sort of daily foster or daily, you know, they'll pay, maybe they'll pay for it. Maybe it could be sponsored just like, you know, pet smart charities just did, mm-hmm. you know, because we all don't know, we're not walking in everybody's shoes and, and yeah. um, knowing how someone takes care of their pet or can't take care of their pet doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. We're not walking in their shoes. Right. So Absolutely. I, I think that the, the ability to bring um, a broader discussion, I love that you said the humane societies are starting to do this now uh, because in my experience in the old days, you know, there was, there was a bias. If somebody yeah. was doing something incorrect, there was never a choice of they didn't know any better. It was that they're just a really bad person. Yeah. And I know you had an opinion on this before you got on because it, it is really, you have to stop and think about where people are coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. And we still have a lot of work to do in this space. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but it's starting to happen. And that makes me very happy and excited. I am so grateful that you've been here and I'm just I'm hoping that we can get back together, talk a little bit more about the restorative. Well, maybe we'll take a, we have about five more minutes. So tell me a little bit more about how the restorative process works in this um, venue, because maybe people don't know what restorative process is. So if you, you'd like to give your point of view, I'd love it uh, because I always am speaking about my point of view, so I'm not going to give it, Uh, but your point of view and then how it's worked and how it's shifted, how even maybe you think. Yeah. So first I'll say I'm not an expert on restorative justice, far from it. I'm mostly trying to facilitate conversations and I'm so lucky to be in an institution where we have leading experts on this. Um, but it's in my mind, and I, you know, I do include a segment on restorative justice in my animal law, um, survey course, restorative justice is really focused on how do we redress these harms and make the community and both sides of the harm whole and the focus is on that rather than punishment. And what that looks like in an animal context can mean a lot of different things because animal law is everywhere. Animals are everywhere. So it really depends a lot on the specifics of the situation. Um, there, I know there was one uh, early restorative justice case where there were disputes about community cats and Um, A restorative justice process was brought in to mediate between those who were trying to help the community cats and those who were irritated by the presence of the community cats. So that's one example. But uh, and not a lot of this is happening yet formally. And it's hard because in traditional restorative justice, the, the victim and the perpetrator have to agree to it. And you're facilitating a dialogue. And of course, you can't dialogue with an animal. So that raises a lot of questions about how do you implement this model in uh, in in the animal context, and I don't have the answers to that, but I I think we need to be talking about it, and so I'm happy to be starting to facilitate those conversations. Well, I'm so glad you couched it in that way because sometimes people think restorative justice just lets somebody get off with a slap on the wrist, which which. I went to the epicenter of restorative justice in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and spent a weekend there with those incredible um, facilitators uh, at the International Restorative Justice 
I think Academy or something. I don't remember the entire name, but I spent a weekend with them and it was the first time they'd ever considered, at least this group, um, using restorative justice uh, in conflicts over animals. They went, wow, why would, no, this is for people. This is for schools. This is for, (laughs) and I go, yeah, not so much. I said, because you're never going to shift this paradigm unless you have a conversation about shifting the paradigm. I said, you, yep. you know, so we, we had the conversation and they were, they were mesmerized. And uh, it's amazing to me how it's become um, more mainstream because restorative was, was at the beginning always seen as, you know, um, touchy feely mm-hmm. and it is touchy feely. You've got your stick and you talk and only the person with the stick can talk. And there's a moderator who holds everyone um, to be respectful. You can have a different opinion Delcy, but you can't be disrespectful. Um, And if you are disrespectful, we do share how we felt when you were disrespectful. Because most of the time, people don't understand how their words land, how what they're saying lands. It's commonplace to them to speak in a certain way, but how it lands with others um, is something we all have to be a little more aware of. So that's why restorative justice and animal law is such a perfect fit. And I'm so grateful that Vermont has um, intertwined these disciplines because you're right, the animal can't speak. But if the people who are observing what they're seeing the animal do or, or not do. Um, and it, it's, well, we know, you know, we do things over and over again. We don't necessarily see the ramifications of it. You might just not notice that what you're doing is creating fear in this animal or happiness in this animal. Uh, and so you, you really want someone to give you their observations. It doesn't yes. mean you're right. It just simply means this is what I'm seeing when you do that. And so it just is such a great way to help people who may not necessarily understand the language of it um, to then observe, oh my God. And because we're human and because we are members of tribes and we, you know, as Brittany Brown says, we always want to be accepted into a tribe, um, being told that what you're doing is so uh, destructive can sometimes shift it in a way that then they become champions of sometimes to a fault, but at least, <laughs> you know, they become yeah. champions of no, don't do what I did uh, because it really um, created an untenable situation for the animal. And then an untenable situation for me when I had to give up my animal or I had to go to jail or whatever it is. I'm, I'm not adverse to people um, serving some time, but I am so, so thrilled. I know when I went to the restorative justice um, conference, there was one speaker who said that these young boys from a fraternity had burned down one of those beautiful Pennsylvania wooden bridges mm-hmm. and uh, the neighborhood got around and, you know, they wanted to, you know, throw them out of school and do all sorts of things. And so they did a restorative justice circle and they had the boys rebuild the bridge. Wow. And that was, you know, that was what the penalty was. Instead of being thrown out of school, instead of rebuild the bridge, we will work with you. We will work alongside of you. And we'll talk to you about what we, what that bridge meant to us, that for a split second, you know, a foolish act, you know, did something, you know, terrible. And so you can go on and learn from it as opposed to just be thrown in jail, pay a fine, whatever, yeah. um, have your schooling changed. What and, and some people want that deleterious um, penalty. However, I, I'm of the, and it seems to me we've talked, I'm of the ilk and you might be of the ilk too. I'd rather save, you know, 20 people by having this one person go out and educate 
uh, from experience than to yeah. just punish one person. Yeah. Because that really doesn't help the animals who are going to be subject to this in the future. Absolutely. Delcy, thank yeah. you so much. This has been wonderful. I know we're going to have many of these because you're going to think of things you want to talk about and you're going to call me and I'm going to think of <laughs> things I want you to talk about and I'm going to call you. Um, so, until, so until next time, thank you, Delcy. I'm thank so you. <laughs> and good luck on all the webinars and all the things coming up. We're going to put those in the show notes. And until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law and Mediation, the Why Do Pets Matter podcast. And of course, kiss your pets for me. I love them so much. Take care. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.